Hello, everybody. Welcome to the State of Mind podcast, where we create space for conversations about mental health that change lives by bringing you the stories underneath the slogans. We want people to learn that they're empowered by their experience, not inhibited. My name is Mike Stroh. I'm the founder of Starts With Me, a consultancy that specializes in K-12 education and workplace mental health. I am a psychotherapist, and I'm passionate about all things mental health and well-being. On today's episode, my guest is Gavin Nardocchio-Jones. He is a Foreign Service Officer with the Government of Canada. Originally from Toronto, his studies took him to the UK for university where he got his BA from the University College of London, a master's at the London School of Economics, and he spent a year abroad at the Université de Toulouse-le-Miral. His career in diplomacy at what is now Global Affairs Canada has taken him him from Ottawa to London, UK, Dakar, Senegal, Los Angeles, USA, and New York City with the United Nations. He has various specializations in bilateral and multilateral relations, anti-crime and terrorism reporting, public diplomacy, cultural sector promotion, and political and economic advocacy pan <laughs> that is a mouthful and economic advocacy campaigns. His current assignment has him learning Portuguese full-time from home in Ottawa before a forthcoming assignment at the High Commission of Canada in Maputo, Mozambique later this year. He is married to Melanie and they have a four-year-old Jack Russell Terrier called Nyoki. In this episode, we discuss a lot of interesting topics, I would say, about how Canada and the values, you could say, that we hold in our democracy, how those are related with countries around the world. We talk about sort of the idea of Western civilization or Western philosophy. Is there even really such a thing? Where do those things come up against other cultural norms in other parts of the world? How do, you could say, Western countries, how do they navigate the moral landscape when working in international relations, as we know, which is very complicated? And more so, we, we try to get to the bottom in some sense of how philosophy, you could say Western philosophy, um, Western political economy and individual psychology, how do those combine together to create the societies that we live in? And how do those things get held in balance through diplomatic relations? I'm really trying to thread a needle in this podcast sometimes between our internal personal world, our internal personal psychology, how that relates to our communities, to our cities, to our provinces, to our nations, countries, and to global affairs. Because I think the only way the world changes is by the individuals within it changing. So I'm really trying to explore that. So I hope you enjoy it. Please, if you have any questions, 
do get in touch. Please share this, rate this, comment, all of those things. I would love your support. Now I have to plug, we have an upcoming festival called the State of Mind Festival. It is a workplace conference and a youth summit. So if you want free tickets, all you have to do is email me, mike at startswithme.ca, and I will send you free tickets. Tell me in the email that you heard me say on the podcast, I am offering free tickets for the festival, and those will be sent your way. You can check it out at stateofmindfestival.com. Okay, without further ado, I bring you the wonderful Gavin Nardocchio Jones. Gavin, thank you so much for being here. And can you please introduce yourself and maybe just say a little bit about what you're up to and how you got to your work uh, in diplomacy for the Canadian government? Absolutely. Mike, thank you so much. Uh, Really honored to uh, be part of this great podcast i was actually listening to a couple of the other episodes you've done just to sort of get a feel and uh, you're doing great work and some of the guests have been super insightful so thank you for your uh great work uh you and i have known each other for like i think i was counting like 22 24 years something like that from like the probably closer 90- to 24 yeah, yeah. 96 97 <laughs> right there so uh skateboards house parties coffee shops hip-hop you know it all goes back <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm a government employee now. I work for Global Affairs Canada, have been since about 2009. Um, and I should say off the top that anything that, that I'm saying here is my personal view. Uh, I do not uh, represent <laughs> the government of Canada in this setting. This is like my Twitter account. It's personal and yeah. retweets, retweets, not endorsements. <laughs> it's just, uh, sharing some of my experience and uh, whether it's through diplomacy or education or some of the some of the mental health challenges that we face as diplomats and uh, just as people in the world today. So yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm currently in Ottawa and studying Portuguese to be posted to Mozambique this summer. Amazing. Amazing. And, and maybe and you've been you've already been posted in Africa, correct? That's right. Yeah, I've, my previous postings, uh, my um, well, I, I, I sort of fell into diplomacy at first by working uh, in London, uh, in the UK, where I did my university and started working for the Quebec government there. They have a separate office. And then subsequently for Canada as what they call a locally engaged staff or LES at the High Commission uh, over in Trafalgar Square there. It's a great gig for three years. Did the foreign service exams, Ottawa, then over to Dakar in Senegal was my first, uh, first proper posting as a, as a diplomat. Uh, three years there, back to Ottawa, and then just finished a, a couple of postings in the States, three years in Los Angeles at our consulate there, and one year at the permanent mission of Canada to the UN in New York, which I just came back from last summer. Wow. And and so just to, before we kind of get into all those topics and world affairs and et cetera, I'm curious what brought you in so what were you what were you doing at school in the UK and and in high school and just as you were growing up did you have a kind of general interest in global affairs and sort of learning about different cultures and all these kind of things like what kind of drew you to it absolutely I was thinking about this as I was prepping for today's conversation and I, I think I just sort of fell into it but we're all products of our environment I think and I was lucky enough to uh, grow up in privilege, you know, leafy North Toronto, uh, private school, uh, university abroad, um, and had parents who were both university professors. My mom was a French uh, lit prof at McMaster, my dad sociology at U of T. 
and we, you know, would travel, we'd go to UK and France or Spain in the summer or in, uh, explore the world as a young person. I actually lived in France as a kid, so I was, uh, grew up in a bilingual household. And for some of your longer list, younger listeners, I can't emphasize enough the importance of language and uh, keeping up, whether it's your you know, family's uh, traditional languages or French in the Canadian context, be bilingual, it really helps in the job market and just in, you know, um, intercultural relations generally uh, and um, and yeah so uh, definitely always had an internet an interest in international and uh, different cultures you know grew up as I said with uh, watching Quebec French and British TV shows you know and <laughs> learning about their humor and as I'm learning with Portuguese now one of the one of the adages of learn of language learning is if you can understand another culture's humor that's when you're really starting to grasp the language, right? You know, play on words, uh, idioms, uh, all those sorts of things. That's a real mark of, I'm not there yet in Portuguese, but I definitely am there in French and for British comedy. But then, yeah, I just sort of fell into it. Like I said, the Quebec job that I mentioned before at the end of my university career was a part-time gig as a receptionist. Uh, had thought I would go into maybe law, maybe um hr recruitment maybe communications pr didn't really know and then landed this gig and uh yeah sort of set me on that path to representing um my country abroad and, um yeah that's so awesome i i i want to just ask you what, what did you major in in university ah so uh, i went to university in the uk and for undergrad at ucl university college london i did a, a combined uh undergrad history in french uh, and that was actually great, especially great too, because um, sort of like how in North America, they have the third year abroad, you know, they send you abroad for a semester or whatever. They have that too in this program. Um, and we, in Europe, it's called the um, Erasmus program. So in your second or third year of university, you go off to another European country and do a full year studying there. So I did it in France. Um, and uh, yeah, so my master's too was in history of international relations at uh, LSE, London School of Economics. And I specialized there as my degree evolved. I sort of specialized in colonialism, French like colonialism, Algeria specifically, decolonization, especially in the British and Kenya, and then post-colonial theory. Um, and did my master's thesis on the fate of Europeans in Kenya after independence. Obscure, but really interesting topic. Well, very interesting. Yeah, that's super cool. Thanks for explaining that. Also, those topics are incredibly relevant, I think, in a lot of the social discourse going on right now. Um, yeah, and before I guess we get into some of those questions, I'd like to explore those things particularly quite a bit is the importance of language. Yeah, and I, I guess I went to a French school as a kid, and I I think I have an inclination towards languages. I can pick up other languages quite well, at least on the surface, the general greetings and et cetera. I can also pick out accents and tones of voice. And I can say with pretty good accuracy, that's from this part of the world, at least. I don't know what country, but um, sure. I think part of that is is just... <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with that. I think that's just ingrained in me. Um, and then I don't. I, I guess as a parent, I feel a little uh, behind the ball because we are not getting our kids into bilingual schools and et cetera, mm. um, which anyhow, I think to your point of 
it, it is really helpful. And there's lots of obviously evidence that people who are bilingual tend to be maybe more competent in certain domains um, or have more opportunities, like you said, too, job market wise. And I think as the world sure. continues to get interconnected, that's a big potential benefit. Do you think that AI technology for language translation in its set is going to reduce the importance of learning other languages or not so much? That's a great question. I was just talking to a buddy in LA who runs a really successful AI company and we were talking about language stuff uh, because of the course that I'm doing. And he was saying that his company is working with all the big firms in whether it's car manufacturer or Walmart or you know uh, big department stores and they're they're using just that to replace the human element for simple translation. Right. When it comes to literature, poetry, uh, anything that has a sense of um, of uh, you know complexity or context, context AI yeah. AI is yeah. still not there. And like right. I was talking about humor, like you know an AI I think is you know uh, the Terminator uh, never really got humor, <laughs> right? Um, that was one of his. What a, I mean, he tried. He tried. John Connors. He did. He him, did. They had a good rapport for a bit, but um, <laughs> uh, taking AI to like the extreme, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But um, it's funny you say that about you having the ear for language. When I first joined the department um, in the late two thousands, there was this test. Now I've forgotten the name of the of the fake country they use. It's like a <laughs> it, no. They 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 literally have a test where they. I think it's like a combination of like. Um, Armenian and like Azerbaijani or something they make a, a fake country name and they give you a text of this invented language and ask you to read it aloud and see what you can pick up from it with no training nothing wow. and from that they establish your your um, ability is the wrong word but your aptitude Competent, right aptitude yeah, yeah. your aptitude to pick up new language wow. and, and accents wow. and pronunciation. And if they give you a score and say, oh, you're actually really good at languages or you might need extra time to, to learn. Um, and I did really well on that too. And like, I feel that whenever I travel and you talked about you know exposing children through immersion, but those of us lucky enough to you know post pandemic, hopefully yeah. travel the world yeah. and bring your kids <laughs> along and whether it's food or cinema or literature, or, community events where you, you know, and we're so lucky in Canada and I'll come back to this later yeah. and hope in the discussion, like, I really think that having seen a lot of and, and represented, have seen a lot of other places and represented our country abroad that we do have it really good here uh, and that we shouldn't forget that when, yeah, sure, we have our problems like everywhere else, but um, we have it really good in terms of diversity. Something that I think Canadian values are, that's like our number one thing is our diversity. Uh, and our strength and diversity and how we always talk about that and how we value it uh, in our society. And language is one of those things. Yeah, I think, um, which, okay, so that's actually a great kind of segue into kind of one of my questions was around what are kind of some of the challenges? And I think the current situation in China is an example of it with the Uyghur, the Uyghurs, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Um, it just sort of this clash of values globally, which has kind of been uh, ebbing and flowing probably for thousands of years. Because um, part of, I guess I want to uh, 
pre put a preamble here in some sense. And I love politics. I my undergrad was in poli sci. I went to Concordia, which was incredibly politically active around 9-11. And so all this, and it was also right around the time the internet was exploding and you kind of get, you grew up, well, at least we grew up in quite a <laughs> magical little world of, of Toronto, like you said, North Toronto, which everything was basically perfect. And we, we thought Canada was this perfect place and peacekeepers and which in some sense was true. We were a good yeah, yeah, contributor yeah. to that. Um, and then you get exposed to the big bad world and you realize, holy smokes, it's not so simple. Um, and, and so why I think understanding politics and global affairs is so important to understanding one's personal mental health is because I think, and this is a this is not my idea, but I align with this spiritual wisdom ideas of the world is an external expression of our collective internal experience. So if we can all improve our internal experience, improve our well-being, be more compassionate, less violent, etc., because violence is part of human nature, which often we don't want to accept. Um, if we can kind of combine those two understandings, I do think it has tremendous benefit to political discussions and to creating a safer world and all those kind of things. Um, and so I would, I guess, however you can contextualize this question of, it seems that Western values or the values that underpin Western democracies are being put on the trial stand big time right now. So whether that's, um, kind of the racial conversation going on in the US, income inequality amongst class. I guess you could also say global trade. All these kind of things are, are calling on the West to adapt maybe or progress or to grow. Yet at the same time, there seems to be this acts that's like chopping at the foundation of Western democracy, which is kind of calling it out for being inherently oppressive and so on and so forth. And, and that's a bit of a generalization. And no, that's I mean, the best I can do to put it into one, you know, a paragraph. But how do you see those things being challenged? And as you say, when you start to travel the world to your point of how important it is to travel, you start to realize how ridiculously lucky we actually are. And then you're also reminded of the horrors of history and the fact that even I'd say since World War II, we've lived in the longest, most sustained period of in uninterrupted global catastrophic warfare. Okay, that's a big mouthful. <laughs> that's a thesis, Mike. That's that the, is a thesis, yeah. I think, I think you should, Dr. Stroh is only... Uh, <laughs> Is only a, a tome or two away. No, lots of super interesting ideas there, and um, yeah, I have some some views. I'll try and, Please, I'll try and yeah. choose yeah. between some of them. Um, I like what you how you started that talking about you know the long view of history as a as a right. you know a, a historian uh, or an era. Uh, at least in my university days, I definitely take the long view about things. I definitely take the view that. You know, this is all part of, you know, cycles of history and cycles of rise and fall and decline, which we've seen throughout human history. 
um, and how that relates to a very, very new country like Canada is sort of TBC, right? right? Uh, 1867, when we, when I was in LA and we were celebrating Canada 150, uh, in all its positives and sometimes negative aspects, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, history uh, the, uh, uh, you know, genocidal nature of some of Canada's yeah. own history uh, with indigenous uh, peoples. Uh, we had to play that duality and think about it as we've been here 150 years, but then, you know, the Americans, even the Americans were sort of like, oh, only 150, we have 250. <laughs> well, it's like, and then, then, you know, the Portuguese who I'm talking to now, right, they, right. they were already exploring the world in 1410. I mean, uh, so what is the long view? Uh, that's important. Uh, the other concept I wanted to address is, and I'm not militant about this, but I think that the, that the concept of like the West is, and like Western democracy is, right. is, is getting to be antiquated in the sense that, you know, the, whether the thinking of East versus West, you know, from a historical perspective started with, you know, Edward Said and his book Orientalism and how he explained how like the West view of the East coded in racialized language, you know, made them the other, made them allowed, that, that allowed the West to colonize them, et cetera. And that goes to your points about identity and, you know, how we, how the, how we, the way we see ourselves and the memory of how we saw ourselves and what other uh, uh, people from our nations did. Uh, colors the our identity today and what and our perceptions of others today right um, and I think that um, this concept of the, the western democracy what does that really mean today the it is definitely the west sort of won the cold war uh, but then other historians like you know uh, Francis uh, Fukuyama I think his name is said that after the cold war it was the end of history because the yeah. West won, right? The, the West won. Right. But but he's since come back and said, oops, no, not at all, because 9-11, because economic crisis, because pandemics, because whatever else. And we yeah. have a new rise of, and like when you ask the question, you know, the clash of values and what are the biggest challenges facing Canada or us right. Human, right. internationally, I think it really depends who you ask and when. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, the global dialogue was about the rise of populism, isolationism, the rise of the strong man, you know, obviously characterized by the former president in the U.S. or Philippines or, uh, you know, Turkmenistan or wherever. But now that the sort of um, bullies of the playground have, have been put in detention, as it were, uh, we're back to some of the old favorites of, you know, um, Western or uh, progressive democracies who are pointing the finger at China, Russia, Climate change, migration, human rights. These are the issues that the global discourse has shifted to again. And that discourse is done through the media, through social media, through civil society, but also through governments and what they say at forums like, at, whether it's bilaterally between each other or in multilateral forums like the UN. Um, so I think, as you said, like the way that we express our personal identity is shaped by the exterior, but then we shape it right back. And I was listening to the the podcast you did with that federal MP. Um, his name is yeah, Mark Holland. Yeah, really interesting insights. I was I was very impressed with some of the things that you guys got into, and he was talking about um, uh, the um, that governments don't have all the answers, but that they are shaped by what the people want, and and that they yeah. can't implement a policy if the people aren't ready for it. 
Like, right. what was he saying? Too many times that he's been saying to his colleagues, we need to act, we need to act now, and then and now. But then someone said, no, no, no. But if we do this now, the next government's just going to come in and throw it under the rug and, you know, get right. rid of it. Look what's happening in the U.S. now with Biden and Trump's policies. The first day, yeah. executive orders, there was like 75 executive orders doing away <laughs> with what Trump did. It was, it was wild. Yeah. So what is the role of government to address these issues to, to talk about these issues it's it, it it varies right and we have to be i think open as citizens but also myself as a bureaucrat and representative of the government to understand there's many cogs in the wheels right in, in, right. in the big wheel of government there's we're all just trying to do our best politicians are the face of that government but we're also really lucky in canada you know we follow the british system of um sort of a constitutional uh, democracy based on the Westminster model, where the political appointee has a very small cabinet office, right? So the Minister of Foreign Affairs has a team of like 12 people around him that change with the governments, right? Uh, liberal, conservative, whatever party's in power. But that below that, literally the next level down on the hierarchy scale is a permanent civil servant. Unlike in the US, where not just the minister and his small cabinet change, but several levels of bureaucracy down are political appointees who have a, a bias towards one way of thinking right. or doing. So in Canada, the UK, Australia, the sort of, you know, uh, Commonwealth, uh, Commonwealth uh, elites, but also in other countries, you have this bureaucracy which stays firm and strong and keeps those values um, uh, stable in a way. And are a are the sort of checks and balances that isn't written to our into into our constitution like it is in the states, but as we saw over the last four years, sometimes those checks and balances don't really work out because one branch or two branches drop the ball, right? Right. Um, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I'll I'll yeah. uh, leave it there for that, but I can come back okay. to the idea okay. of the. Um, of you know Canada's place in the world too, if you have other things you want to add. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I think I know. I put a, a mouthful together there, and I <laughs> I am practicing trying to organize thoughts to be a little more one one after the other and concise. But one thing that I also appreciated about Mark Collin was um the the yeah the discussion around how the public how, how the public influences politicians and and how that sort of back and forth i think was really interesting and i didn't think much of it but the fact that because oh, we got into forgiveness too a lot i think a bit about that and one of the reasons why politicians i guess the title of the thing was why do politicians lie um well they lie because we <laughs> I mean, again, it doesn't excuse the lying, perhaps, but it's an incentive model. And so they're incentivized to lie, distort the truth, play to their biases, because we as the electorate um, or citizens, that's how we behave in some ways. So we, if they were to tell the truth and say, oh, so a great example would be Trudeau. I mean, he's botched the, the vaccine thing terribly what a disaster and rather than or even the we the we scandal with the we charity if he were to come out and say something like you know you know what canada i did really screw this up and perhaps some of my and again i'm just 
projecting what I would think happened, mm-hmm. but, and he were to admit to being a little self-centered and a little, um, what's the word, uh, nep- nepotism, right? That's the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nep- nepo- I don't know if there's a nepotistic or whatever, <laughs> engaging in nepotism with his, with his wife and his mom getting money from the charity and just this whole kind of almost orgy of privilege, passing it around. Um, if he were just to acknowledge that and say, I'm sorry, you're right, I screwed up. The media would torch him. They're, they already torch him a little bit for not admitting. But if he were to really expose himself and be vulnerable and honest, there would be a shitstorm of anger and this and that. And, and it, he, he'd probably lose the next election. Who knows? Anyway, but the point being, until we as people, and this gets back to the individual mental health stuff and well-being, until we as humans individually can learn to be more forgiving, less judgmental, um, perhaps a little more mm, compassionate, understanding, those type of things, um, then of course our politicians are not going to embody behavior no. that that supports that. So. Um, I thought that was yeah super interesting and yeah and I, I think yeah yeah no it's a really good point and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna start uh, no of course yeah yeah you don't have to comment disagreeing yeah. with political yeah. stories but no but I can yeah. say that one thing that's changed in the discourse is that and I think it started in about 2006 when uh, Prime Minister Harper won his first minority government and the press the the way and this has been well documented this is not news to anyone. The way that um, external communications were managed from the prime minister's office changed overnight. Before, if you were an ambassador in Nairobi or wherever, and you wanted to talk to the press, be it the Globe and Mail or the local media, you would, you know, talk about it with your team and do an interview and tell you know, HQ later, right? Um, but I think it was both, you mentioned like the rise of social media, the rise of the immediacy of social media, but also yeah. a ch- the minority government, but also a change in how Canadians started to perceive their leadership. Uh, all press releases had to come through PMO, and it was under the title usually of the Harper government. And you see that still today, which I disagree with, that it should be called the Trudeau government. No, it's the government of Canada. Right, right. Prime Minister Trudeau happens to be the elected head of the government of Canada right mm-hmm. now. But as I was saying before, the importance, what's often overlooked is it's, you know, you talk about the vaccine issue. I, I, I uh, do have personal views that I don't need to share here, but it's not Mr. Trudeau that messed up. Right, there right, is, right. There Thank is yes, 100,000 yeah. civil servants <laughs> in Canada uh, you know, who at some point or another have been working to keep the country moving during a pandemic. And this is sort of my pitch for, you know, this applied to, you know, do you remember during the um, U.S. election, uh, you know, post-election debacle about, you know, fraudulent votes and whatever? And I don't know if you saw that state official in Georgia who got up in front of the mic and was like, enough you're threatening good people, no, no, no. And granted, he was a partisan guy himself, Republican, but the fact that he was a partisan Republican appointee, even coming out and saying, calling out the president and others for their silence or encouraging violence. But what he said there really hit home to me as a fellow civil servant in the Canadian context, because 
too often we put, I think, too much emphasis on victimizing or, or passing blame on our leaders. Yes, the leaders are ultimately accountable, no question. But underneath that leadership is a raft of bureaucrats who, there's jokes about, there's lots of jokes about bureaucrats and our inefficiencies and how much time it takes and whatever. But at the end of the day, we are all sworn to um, preserve our values, do our work transparently, do our best to put to follow the laws and um, legislation put in place by governments. And you know that great old series, uh, Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister from the UK. I don't know if you've ever seen. A lot of clips have been coming around um, as memes these last few years because it was made in the '80s and still what uh, Sir Humphrey, who's the sort of chief civil servant to the minister, says about you know, foreign policy or bureaucracy still hold true today that the bureaucracy is there for the long term, the stability of our country and our people and making sure that we don't waste money and that we don't, that we follow the rules and that political parties come and go, but the civil service stays. So this is my pitch to say, yes, the leadership can be accountable for problems or scandals or, or, but also successes. But when those successes happen and failures, it's not just the leaders, it's also the bureaucracy who are there to implement legislation, policies, do policy research, and spend money wisely. I mean, that's, when I'm abroad representing Canada, that's my number one concern, whether it's with, you know, uh, Canadian NGOs, local NGOs, civil society organizations, that we work to amplify Canada's voice through partnerships with, as I said, local or Canadian civil society, members of civil society that share our values or that we want to promote as, hey, look, this indigenous artist, or, oh, you're a um, Muslim woman in Toronto with a new fashion line? Oh, why don't you come down to LA Fashion Week? We'll facilitate that. Or there's a new film premiere at, at TIFF. Let's send some journalists to go look at the Canadian content and talk about that in variety or whatever. Ways to spend money in the guidelines transparently uh, and not, you know, not sole source it, but sometimes you do have to sole source things because there's only a certain indigenous artist from Vancouver that fits the bill to come and perform at this festival in, uh, you know, Palm Springs or whatever. So there's a lot of work that goes down behind the scenes by, uh, you know, the little people, but we do do our best. And maybe this is something we can talk about too, is, you know, Canada, one of the uh, sayings about Canadian foreign policy is that we punch above our weight right? Uh, Canada is only a country of, what is it now? 40 million people. Uh, we're a G7 nation. Uh, we sit around the big table with the big boys and, and girls. And we, you know, we, we have impact. Well, from the inside, I can say that we definitely try to punch above our weight. But more often than not, we are the little, the little brother, the little guy hiding behind, you know, Maybe it's the US one day, maybe it's France the next day. It's very tough for us to have leverage, right? Our leverage is our relationship with the US and placement in the world. 75% of our trade, I think it's more now, are with the US. We're each other's biggest trading partner. We're so dependent on them for, in, for innumerable things that it's very hard to, I'm not saying that we don't disagree with American colleagues all the time, but that we really have to realize our place in the world. And I think that's what comes from identity uh, too, is that, you know, Canadians, we often, you know, what makes a Canadian, right? What is Canadian identity? For a lot of people, it's not being American, right? Uh, I remember my Portuguese teacher saying the other day, but like, 
oh, but you guys are Canadian, but you know, when you go to eat a Jamaican patty, that's Jamaican food, not Canadian food. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's another thing is that those, those Caribbean restaurants, that's like, when I say what's Canadian food, you know, from uh, Eglinton station, I get a tasty patty. I get a Cinnabon. <laughs> I get a, a samosa. That's Canadian food for me, right? That's the richness of our culture. Uh, it's not just bacon and maple syrup and salmon. Uh, it's way more than that. Um, and so, as I said, punching above our weight, we have to use all the tools in our toolbox uh, to promote Canada, not just economically or investments or mining companies or whatever it is, but the richness of our people. That's where I think we get a lot of our uh, a lot of our strength. Awesome. So the okay, two things is one was always uh, tried to bring it back to the individual level. So the same way that as an individual, we experience, I think one, one description of being human that's great is we are a process. We're not fixed. So some days we have good days, we have bad days, we have a whole range of emotions. We're constantly in this process of being an organism and connecting the personal to the collective or whatnot. It's the same with government. It's the same with society. We have these ups and downs and we have conflict and then we have periods of joy and peace and et cetera. And it's a bit abstract, but the more we can see others in ourself and ourself in others, whether it's individual or as a, as a collective community, I think that increases our own sense of I'm not uniquely flawed as a human when I'm having a bad day. I'm also not uniquely special when I succeed. Cause I think that's another bit of a misnomer is um, I do think people should be rewarded when they work hard and et cetera, but the birth lottery and the fact that you and I were born in Toronto, we had nothing to do with that. Right. And so it's important, I think, in that sense to have some humility on how we got to where we are and how we can help perhaps increase that opportunity for others mm -hmm. um, and not being so hard on each other and systems or governments when they fail. Um, and then I think I've already, oh, the other part around values. And I'm curious what this looks like in your experience is how do from an international perspective, because I think I'm going to pull a little bit out of the weeds here. Part of what seems to be going on right now is this kind of attack on, and I also like how you, um, I was going to say attack on Western values or systems of governance. And I like how you said that that's almost a misnomer because, it, and that was really interesting. Yeah. And I, yeah. And so anyhow, this idea of perhaps a rule of law of quote unquote meritocracy, which is a whole nother kind of, <laughs> who knows, misnomer perhaps, but um, how, because I think that criticism is so inherently from within. So it's people within Canada or the US attacking the system that they live within. Um, so when, when you're abroad interacting with other governments or other systems of whatever, uh, running countries or societies, what, what are clear Canadian values in some mm, sense? Mm. I think our culture might be one and our openness, 
But yeah, and how does how do those conversations go with other countries who may have similar or different values? Or um, does that kind of make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is at the core of what we do in terms of advocacy of Canadian of Canadian values or human rights, okay. or whatever. But I'll go back to the first point um, yeah. that you made first. Humans is a process, ups and downs. Totally agree. I think that you know taking it from the international context, I talked about our partnership with the US and they say that in foreign service, you never really understand Canadian foreign service until you work on the US file. And I was really lucky to, lucky and some might say unlucky <laughs> to land in LA in summer 2016. And we thought that Hillary would win and that it would be you know climate change and cultural promotion. And then uh, November 8th happened and uh, Mr. Trump won. And it was NAFTA uh, renegotiations, uh, aluminum tariffs, uh, 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 and a lot, a lot of hard work to, you know, we even had like the odd, not many, but like protesters outside of our official residence yelling obscenities during an event, like, get out of here, Canadians, I don't know, like, whoa, like, very strange all of a sudden to wake up and have your best friends all around you, you know, disagree oh, with yeah. you publicly and force your hand to, you know, and I thought that Prime Minister Trudeau and Minister Freeland at the time did an amazing job in sort of calmly countering that being forthright and strong, but not being belligerent or, or mean. Um, and, uh, but I think it relates to, you know, friendship and on a personal level, but also international is that tradition, our, our traditional friends, you know, the West, um, sure, they've done a lot for us and sure they share most of our values, but they'll have their own interests. And I think we, uh, as I experienced, especially in New York at the UN, looking in this multilateral situation of 193 countries, there's a lot of other people out there, a lot of other countries out there with not necessarily the same values, but that do share a lot of interests. And that's where it gets tricky, right? Uh, and that's where the private sector has much more um, uh, ampleur, uh, uh, um, uh, latitude uh, to make decisions and make new friends or investments or however you want to put it in countries that maybe the Canadian government wouldn't necessarily recommend that are run by uh, run that have different forms of government and um, where we say to ourselves ooh, not sure we can invest in country Y at this amount or support this company's investment this amount because we don't agree with that government or or they imprison um, you know millions of people in concentration camps or whatever it might be um, but that being said, I think that as it relates to the person, I think this holds true too, especially in the age of social media, when and I listen to other of your podcasts talking about, you know, the impact of social media on young people and, you know, ego and identity and shame and competition. And I feel that too, when I open Instagram and I see all these people, it's like, man, that person's life is amazing. Well, I wish I was in Tulum with that person or whatever. <laughs> um, but that, that applies in the international space too, where it's okay to think about exploring new partnerships and we can't be scared of the risks. Uh, I think that's something that as a foreign service officer, I try and push all the time. So when I go to Mozambique and I'll be working with also um, um, the government of Malawi and the government of East Watini, formerly Swaziland, um, they, they'll be partners that we're trying to bring into the fold and then vice versa, us them trying to bring us into their way of thinking. And we need to explore that. We need that intercultural sensitivity uh, or interpersonal sensitivity 
to make new friends, take the risk, put ourselves out there with our values, but also not close the door right away. Oh, no, you, you don't share those values. Oh, sorry, can't be friends, right? Dialogue, uh, communication, so, so important. And to just finish on sort of values, rule of law, et cetera, an example I'll give, it sort of, it's sort of always stuck with me from my time in Senegal. We were talking about um, upcoming elections, um, yeah, legislative elections in Senegal. And I said to my locally engaged colleague, I said, well, you know, this new guy will just be like the old guy, you know, super corrupt. And, uh, you know, I don't understand why anybody would, would support him or whatever. And he looked at me and was like, you don't really get it, though, do you? Because in our way of democracy, the democracy that has been imposed on them by, by the, uh, you know, imperialists before, let's not forget, um, we operate in a type of, you know, lowercase s socialism, where whoever you support, for whatever reason, owes you something. Now, not personally, but the whole idea of trickle-down economics in a less traditionally Western society is that whether it's along ethnic lines or religious lines or whatever, I'm going to support this person because I want to get something out of it, like any good citizen. And I expect that that leader, I don't really mind how he does it, will let me get my piece, get my bread at the end of the day, whether that's in actual bread or rice in some context or whatever it is, or cash. And at the triple, so like he was like, no, lots of people are going to support that guy actually because he's really good at what we call corruption. But what he calls the trickle down of, I'm going to support you and that you're going to give a bunch of cash to my second uncle for that contract. And that's going to trickle down to me and my family. So that's why I'm going to support you. And that's not wrong. So we have to be, so yes, it doesn't jive with how we view that, the function of democracy in the sense of elect a, you know, accountable, transparent, pure, follow the rule of law leader, and then we can be friends. We are definitely operating in that in the context of that country, playing by their rules, but also maintaining ours, right? And it's a delicate balance. Yeah, I just want to jump in on that quickly, because what's nice about that is the forthrightness of no, 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 this is actually how we do it. And I think Canada may be less so, but the U.S. is incredibly corrupt, the political system and the lobbyist. And the, I mean, it's disgraceful. And I think if, if, if the West wants to, again, using that word, the West. If, no, that's, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. But I, I like the, the curiosity about what that actually means. But um, mm -hmm. if America is to have any moral standing it, they there has to be something or something has to be done about the political corruption that's going on there it's a it's a disaster um, but it's the way that their system has been created the system of yeah. lobbyists the system of yeah. you know there's no there's no um what's it called uh uh accountability almost? no there's no oh, fundraising right. legislation you know all these right. super PACs and all these like it's based on it's based on money, and that's why they always call the elections based on how much you raised, not just because of like that you can put out ads on Facebook, but because you have huge interest groups and their maybe their employees, maybe their their state or their city supporting a candidate and telling themselves, "Well, no, vote for this guy. We just gave him a million dollars, and he's going to do well by us later." It's the same system. We just yeah, call it, it something is, different. Yeah. 
Yeah, right? yeah totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish we could be a little more open about that because the more we pretend it's otherwise, the more nothing happens. And the more, sure. I think, the anger and resentment of the citizens gets directed in the wrong place because because there's nowhere else to direct it almost in some ways yeah 100%. i have another quick example actually speaking please of yeah. corruption in elections i remember my first job in the department was on the central africa desk covering uh cameroon gabon chad a couple other countries like that and the cameroonians were having a uh, presidential election and as you may know cameroon has one of the longest serving presidents uh, still on the continent uh he's been there like 50 some years since independence basically uh, and so the result was, uh, let's just say, uh, expected. Uh, and it was at the time of the um, robocall scandal in Canada. Do you remember? In the I do, I right do. where there was like this robocall system set up by a, a certain party that was calling voters and telling them to go to a different polling station. It was wild. It was a wild scandal on the on, in the Canadian political scene. And that same week, I was asked to, you know, even though I was a junior officer, to go into the Cameroonian, uh, was it Cameroon or Senegal? Anyways, uh, embassy and sort of express to the ambassador, you know, Canada's desire for, you know, free and fair elections. And he was like, listen, young buck, <laughs> message received, right? We get a lot, we're getting a lot of this these days. But you, and he held up the newspaper and he says, you have the audacity to come in here and talk to me about free and fair elections when this is the headline of the Golden Mail today about robocalls of your leader of the leadership in this country. And that's the thing. Whether with the U.S. with a little bit more weight behind itself in terms of financing and uh, or military might or whatever it might be, Canada to go around and wag the finger at other countries without looking at ourselves first. I mean, that's where I think the link is to to self and to individuals. Yes. 100%. Right? Yeah. Is that like you need to take a good look at yourself? Uh, and yeah, some people um, can be offended by you. Uh, you. One isn't always right. You know, you have to look inward first, I think, before you can. And it's not to say that you have to have your own house in order before you can demand that others, you know, stop genocide. Right. That's not what I'm saying. Right. Um, but uh, you need to uh, be accountable and be conscious of it. And that's why I thought Prime Minister Trudeau's speech to the UN General Assembly a couple of years ago was so poignant, is that he used that platform. I'm talking about Canada's place in the world or to wag the finger or whatever, but solely to speak about uh, Indigenous reconciliation. I think it was 2016 or 17, I forget now. And so the entire speech was a not for a domestic audience necessarily. It was telling the rest of the world, we are working on us right now. We're working on fixing our regrets and our faults before we, but at the same time, it's not before, at the same time as we're engaging with the world, this is our priority ourselves, which I think was a really poignant thing for, especially these days in pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Let's kind of take that a bit further. It's the same with, um, well, one, when if you go in front of the world and say that, you better be backing it up by your actions. And of course, that can always be argued how much that's actually happening or not. And I don't 100%. just mean in the context of Canada and Indigenous people, but in, in general, when we 
when we say, yeah, I'm, I'm working to, to take an example would be uh, a couple. So say you have a partner or maybe even a family member, that family member is not well uh, psychologically, maybe it's a substance use issue or something along those lines. And they say, no, no, I, I'm, I'm getting treatment or I'm seeing a therapist or I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing. It's simple to say that. Uh, it's about whether that person's actually doing it that matters. And, and then I think part of that whole process, and I love that analogy of the individual versus the collective, are we actually doing work in this domain? And then where this gets there's so much tension around this. And I know we only have about five more minutes is when, when I was listening to an interview, Oh, I'm not going to be able to find her name. She's a Muslim Canadian. She came here from Uganda, was a refugee, her family. um, And she just wrote a book that says she's a Canadian academic, although she works in the States. Mm. I think it's like, don't label me or something like that. And it's a pushback against the, you could say extreme end of the wokeness that's hyper-focused on identity and mm-hmm. racializing mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And her, her point is in some sense, like the, the woke crusaders, whatever, I don't know how else to put it. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my new, that's my new term for them. Great. Okay. okay. <laughs> and so they're all going around being like, you need to, you know, denounce your privilege and, and acknowledge your bias and your implicit bias, you know, just the whole litany of accusations. Mm-hmm. Yet they will never, ever turn the finger, you know, when they say, whenever you're pointing your finger at somebody, there's three pointing right three back at you. Back. Yeah. Yeah. And so they'll just never turn around and say, or at least acknowledge what their biases are. And so part of role modeling i think ethical and moral if that's you know a flexible word uh behavior is and i like that you said we don't have to be perfect right we don't have, we we can still call out bad behavior without necessarily being perfect ourselves but we also do have to perhaps be proving through our actions that we are also working on ourselves and that's so whether that's a Canadian government addressing indigenous issues, uh, but also the indigenous communities working internally in their own space. And then again, taking it to, I'll give a real personal example. It was like when I was sobering up from long period of intense addiction and, and substance abuse, I had to really screw my own head on straight and make sure my actions were backing up what I said out of my mouth. Um, because if I ever wanted my wife to behave differently, I had to be showing her that at least I was doing everything I could to behave differently myself. And even that didn't mean I was going to be perfect and so on and so forth. But that's sort of the microcosm of this, this impulse to just point fingers without, without internalizing what we're pointing about. Absolutely. But no, but you just said it. It doesn't mean I had to be perfect. Right. Right. But your wife accepted you. But doesn't mean that Canada Canadian government has to be perfect, but we're trying to right. be accountable. We're doing our best. It doesn't mean right. that, right. you know, I, I, I have an example and we do have to wrap up. I'm afraid I, I, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm, uh, I, I have to get to another meeting, but for sure. When I was working in LA, we covered Southern California, Arizona, Nevada, and the indigenous um, 
reconciliation issue was top of Canada's priority list for advocacy abroad, all over right. the world, talking about what we're doing on, on and promoting Indigenous artists, academics, whoever, was one of our priorities. And I went to Arizona, where there's a huge Indigenous population or Native American population, or actually, mm -hmm. they actually are using the term Indian to describe themselves. Now. Yeah, yeah. Sort of reappropriating that that term as well and working with a um with a woman there and i was describing canada's reconciliation um uh you know structure uh the legislation behind it the new departments that were created just like what government is doing and we we're having lunch she started crying she started crying into her sandwich like sort of with a smile on her face it was there were sort of happy tears because she was like man and she knew about it already, but when she heard me, a white, you know, non-indigenous uh, government thing, speaking so passionately about what a government is doing to try and address, you know, historic uh, wrongs, she was like, we in the States, as Native Americans, we're two or three generations away from even having the conversation, right? Still so far away from that. And the fact that we're, and of course, Indigenous people in Canada, some love reconciliation, some hate it, some loved Canada 150, some called it colonialism 150, and all those views are valid. But you've got to listen to each other, and you've also got to say, we're doing our best. Or call out people for, say, for, for, for being hypocrites and saying they're doing their best when they're not really. But I believe that, as, as I said before, that in Canada, we have it better than we, have it better than we think. We do a lot of navel gazing um, about uh, about uh, how bad we have it, and you know, uh, well, the the garbage didn't get picked up yesterday. It's a disaster. Well, you know, in some countries they don't they don't even have that. So you know, we have to give our sense, our we have to be aware of our sense of self as a country in the world, and our sense of self in a community and in a society, and um, be aware and. But also not let the, you know, I love it, woke crusaders, um, allow people to be um, silenced. There's exceptions there. Yeah. I was a big fan of the Harper's letter, and I'll sort of leave it at that, that came out in the summer, where a bunch yeah. of authors were talking about you know, the importance of not free speech, but just of dialogue. And the ability of someone, regardless of who they are, or where they're from, if they have something to say that is valid based in fact based in research based in opinion to have an opinion it's okay to have an opinion but as long as you don't shove that opinion in other people's throats and try and have them believe something that they don't want to believe um so i guess i'll leave it at that and say um yeah i've really enjoyed uh talking to you man it's great to reconnect yeah and, uh, it is uh I, I, maybe we can uh do a part two uh i think we we most definitely need to yeah thank you so much i'm gonna leave it with one huge practice that's very helpful for personal well-being is gratitude and i think we can have gratitude and acknowledge where we can improve and so it's not about being perfect we all make mistakes we're not perfect and being grateful for what we have personally and and collectively is incredibly health promoting and so yeah thank you so much gavin and uh you, yeah you too buddy hopefully we can chit chat another time uh, and sure. etc well, but well, i know you gotta go so yeah i, I get yeah. back to toronto before we go i'll definitely uh okay we'll, we'll, please do we're all turning 40 this year right? we gotta do something 
Dude, we need vaccines and then we need a place Bar- to hang out. <laughs> barbecues, barbecues. Yes, 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 yes. All the best, okay, man. Lots dude. of love. Yeah, you too, man. Bye. Take it easy.